Welcome to Crosspoint. 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 An interactive program featuring ministers and leaders of the Christian community addressing the issues that are challenging the church today. Here's your host, Mark Taylor. How does a person deal with being left behind going to have to face a great tribulation ahead of them? Well, let's find out. Welcome to this edition of Crosspoint. I'm your host, Mark Taylor. My guest today is James B. DeYoung. He's a professor at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon, and has authored several books. And on this one today, we're going to be talking about, and another, we want to know and talk about what happens when you miss the rapture. Well, here on Crosspoint today... Um, have a couple of interesting books to talk about. Uh, we've got the same author. We have two authors actually here in the first book, but we're going to be talking to one of those authors, James B. DeYoung, and uh, it's called Miss the Rapture. And then a little while later, we're going to talk about the pre-trib rapture and the key to the end of the world. These books are very timely about what's going on in our world today. And James, thanks for being with us today here on Crosspoint. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate the opportunity to speak about these books. Well, looking right here at the first book here, uh, Missed the Rapture, uh, that's kind of a scary thought, but uh, it says, uh, and, and you're talking about it right in chapter one, you said, what just happened? And so, you know, we've had the rapture, and then, you know, on uh, page eight here, it says, questions about the disappearance, you know, they can mean many things, but you talk about how the media and the government won't be honest, there won't be an honest effort to explain uh, what happened in this spiritual event. Uh, that just happened, and it could happen at any time, could it not? Oh, yeah. Uh, the book, uh, may I say a little bit about how the book was conceived? Okay. Uh, my co-author, John Bulch, uh, is a retired minister, and he and I meet regularly to t- discuss spiritual things and go over uh, various uh, questions that we have and are thinking about. And one day he said to me, you know, I think that we ought to write a booklet about uh, what it would be like to be left behind after... Uh, Jesus returns in the rapture for the church, and uh, I thought that was a great idea, and then I had written a book before this about the Antichrist and and the coming of the Lord Jesus at Armageddon and so forth. We put our heads together, as it were, and and he uh, wrote the first half of the book, which deals with uh, an explanation of what the rapture is and then how a person can become a Christian, because those left behind will not be believers until afterward. Then I authored uh, the second half of the book, which covers uh, the events as described in the Bible concerning the coming of the Antichrist, what he does to Israel, what he will do to uh, the whole world, as recorded in Daniel and in the New Testament, what the Great Tribulation will be like, and finally uh, the culmination of the Great Tribulation at Armageddon and so forth. So that was the genesis of the book, and as we wrote, the book, the booklet got <laughs> larger and larger, and it ended up being a 300-plus page book. So in any case, uh, we went quite thoroughly into both of those positions. And in the book, um, I'm looking at page 13 right now, you talk about uh, you know, the progress that mankind has made and how it can be that a world has descended to a point where God has had enough and said, did you once have this opinion? Has it changed you, uh, what you've seen in the world around you, to descend into moral uh, chaos? Now, what I want to kind of point out or have you point out here, is this a book that you're writing to us today or to those that are, picks this book up when they miss the rapture? Well, as we say, I think in the introduction or preface, that uh, this book is oriented especially toward those who are left behind. I might point out that each chapter begins with a fictional 
account. Yes. We, we spend a couple pages having a fictional vignette, and we try to project what it would be like for somebody to be left behind after the rapture. Part of his family has gone, his wife and his daughter, and he and his son are left behind because they had not put faith in Christ. And so um, we wrote the book for those people who all of a sudden discover that they're left behind, and they've no doubt perhaps heard the gospel but never accepted it. So how do they come to faith, and what will be the various challenges they will face? Uh, And so we wrote it for that audience. However, we also say that uh, it is very helpful for people (laughs) before the rapture to discover what is the rapture all about, and secondly, what does it mean for me personally, and what is my relationship to the Lord Jesus, so that people can come to faith now before the rapture and be raptured with the rest of the Church. So it serves a twofold purpose, but it's mainly written for those uh, who are left behind. Well, James, looking at the book, and as I look at the book and read through the book and seeing how you started these chapters out, uh, would this not be a great book, in my opinion anyway, for a group discussion in a home or something and each week go through a different chapter and talk about the scenario of that chapter? Oh, I think that's a great idea. We, I appreciate your sharing that. I had not really thought of that application of it. But yes, it would readily lend itself to that purpose. It's written uh, in basically an easy-to-understand uh, format, and therefore for a home Bible study would fit in well, I think. Yeah, I agree. As I read through that, I thought, boy, this would be great to just sit down and read through the scenario of what just happened, you know, to this person as the chapter started, and then, you know, read through the different areas or have other people read, maybe have some person read that uh, actually is that person uh, pretending to be, of course. And uh, another uh, place here in the book on page 17, and it talks about another opportunity for you. Don't make it your last. And it says, here's the bottom line. If you've been left behind, left behind because uh, whatever you may have thought about Jesus Christ before, you haven't yet placed your faith in Him, but it's not too late to do that. So you're leaving some hope and encouragement to people and telling them there's still a way for you to get here, to heaven. Oh, yes. We want to uh, make clear that uh, the invitation is wide open until the Lord comes back, and therefore it's going to be far more easy to accept Jesus now, prior to the uh, Great Tribulation, than afterward. Yeah. Now, you also have a part in here in the book. You talk about, I believe it's the bare bones, uh, different yep. things. Tell us about that part of the book, and because you have that in the different chapters. Uh, well, yes. Uh, my colleague, again, John Bulch, uh, wrote uh, these chapters, and in that second chapter, he lays out the essentials of the Gospel, what is necessary for a person to come to faith, to become a believer, and uh, that begins with a historical vignette again that we created as far as uh, laying an introduction for that book. But it lays out the essential uh, things that a person must uh, know and uh, believe uh, to be saved. So it's a clear presentation of the Gospel. It's a wonderful uh, book to hand out to people. I've given out uh, all kinds of copies of this book to unbelieving people, and I simply introduce it to uh, with the words, if you have ever thought about the end times, the times at the end, and what is specifically known as the rapture of the Church, or if you've never thought of that, here's a book that will tell you about that and how to come to faith. And so I've given away copies of this book because it is so clear a presentation of the Gospel that uh, old people and young people can come to Christ, especially in this chapter, laying out the 
the essentials of the gospel. It's it's very much parallels uh, other presentations we find of the gospel in, in gospel tracts, such as the four spiritual laws and so forth. Back to this idea of having a, a Bible study, chapter 3 is a good example of inviting non-Christians uh, into something like this, because that's an introduction to eternal life, and that helps yeah. people to understand. So you've kind of got different aspects and levels here for people to understand who whoever would come into a group like this, or whoever would pick this book up to read it, do you not? Oh, yes. And so we talk about uh, who it is, who, who is Jesus Christ, uh, what does it mean to be born again, uh, who is the Holy Spirit, and what is his role in our salvation, and how he serves as a down payment, as it were, guaranteeing our salvation and our future. We deal with uh, how to become certain of eternal life. I think that's a very important issue, and as persecution would arise, or even today as we see various challenges to our faith, uh, being certain of how we can have eternal life in Christ is very much important and, and a key. Yeah. Now, chapter 5 and some chapters beyond that, you talk about profitable principles for tribulation, and you talk about living one, then living two and stuff. Tell us about these chapters. What are you trying to draw the reader to here in these areas of the principles for tribulation? Yes. Well, John devoted uh, two chapters to the principles for living during the tribulation. And so he takes up, first of all, God's promises that he's given to be with his people, and that flows over to the next topic of presence, and then the peace and power that we can have as believers. All of this is oriented toward what it means to live during the tribulation when uh, the Antichrist and his people are in charge and in control. And in uh, uh, Matthew, especially now of the discourse that Jesus gives in, in Matthew 24, several times, I think it's a total of four times in the very first few verses, warns about deceit. And so how can we be assured of what God's Word says concerning His power and His presence in our lives? And then the peace that we can find during the time of tribulation, the people who are living during that time can actually uh, lay hold of God's or our Lord's great promise, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives unto you, do I give unto you. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And a group of people living then will know that promise greater than any other people living before that time. So that's uh, the first chapter on the profitable principles. Then the next chapter deals with the perspective that believers will need to have during that time, then an emphasis on perseverance and persecution. The verse that comes to my mind, especially regarding perseverance, is Jesus' promise that he would be with us to the very end. He who perseveres to the end will be saved. Those words will take on a reality and a depth that previous generations never knew. And, and Jesus warns also that those days will be shortened in order to save the elect from being deceived. So we have little comprehension, I think, or understanding of what it will be like during a period of great uh, deceit and persecution. Yeah. So as the saints in the past have gone through persecution, and even to this very day in other countries, believers uh, are persecuted heavily and even put to death, well, this will become worldwide, and it will be particularly um, significant for Christians in the West at this time, especially perhaps in America, because we have not known persecution and suffering as people in other places of the world perhaps have done. So <clears throat> these chapters uh, 
are aimed toward bringing along the new believer in Christ and seeing that he is able to persevere in the midst of great persecution. Now, I thought it was interesting in that first uh, chapter there of that, uh, part one, uh, you talk about the principle of peace in there. And uh, then on page 75, it says, how does a person keep his wits when everyone in, or everyone around them seems to be losing theirs? Well, it's largely yeah. an issue of peace and especially the nature of peace. And then you said, as a believer, you have three choices. So you give those you give some choices. You, this helps people to try to understand a little bit because, you know, they're going to need peace. There's no doubt about that uh, when all of this stuff's happening. And if they're left behind, they're definitely going to need peace. Yeah. I also noticed here in the uh, second part of the uh, chapter where in your number two of that, you made an interesting comment there on page 89. You said, and we said that the chief uh, world conflict of the tribulation will be a spiritual one. And you and all others that Christ will bring to himself after the rapture will become the chief enemy of both the Antichrist and the evil one. There's no honest way to sugarcoat uh, the matter. Sooner or later, you're going, not going to be able to avoid the impact of this conflict and your personal experience of it uh, could be very costly. So that's an interesting comment, but you're telling them uh, in here what's basically got to happen once they make this decision and they're having to face to face more or less with the Antichrist. Yes, and just before the the word that you quote, we uh, cite the John 15, where Jesus addresses this uh, directly, beginning with the word that the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. Uh, one of the things that Jesus does in the Upper Room Discourse, from which these verses are quoted, is to warn his disciples, his followers, uh, that the prince of the power of the world is very active, and he will be seeking uh, to deceive and to uh, cause the world to oppose uh, Jesus' followers. So it's a stark warning that uh, the relative peace that believers in America especially know is going to be totally changed for believers during the time of the Great Tribulation. Yeah. Now, you also have in here these chapters on basic Christian disciples. You have several of those now that you kind of really touch on. Why is that? Well, because uh, the only way for Christians to persevere is for them to grow and to become more aware and informed of the resources that Christians have by which to persevere uh, during the time of the Great Tribulation. And so uh, John devoted a chapter to several Christian disciplines. I think there are four chapters that deal with uh, the different Christian disciplines. Christian disciplines simply mean those guidelines and activities that a person as a believer needs to engage to grow <clears throat> into maturity as a believer and to become more like Christ and be a follower of Him. Much has been written about Christian disciplines in the last couple uh, decades or so, and John is basically tapping into uh, that concept because it's a good biblical concept touched upon in various places in the New Testament. Folks, we've got an interesting conversation going today. Stay with us. We'll have more right after this. This is Mark Taylor. If you miss a broadcast of Crosspoint, you can always go to our website at www.kneo.org and click on the programs page. There you can access the current Crosspoint program as well as the last four programs that have been aired. Never miss another Crosspoint program again. Go to www.kneo.org today. Welcome back to Crosspoint. I'm Mark Taylor. My guest today is James B. DeYoung. And uh, James, along with John, 
Balkick has also written this book, Miss the Rapture. Hey, uh, James, tell us how people can find out about more about this book and also the other book we're going to be talking about, uh, The Pre-Trib Rapture. How do they find out more about this book? Well, this book is available through Amazon and uh, perhaps uh, uh, bookstores that are well known. So it's uh, relatively easy to find and can be uh, uh, ordered through a site like that. Yeah. And so now have you done quite a bit of other work as well? I know you've been involved in, uh, you know, teaching in seminary and stuff for years and all that. Have you put other stuff together that is available? Well, I've actually written almost a dozen or over a dozen books. And uh, they range about they range from various things that I thought were challenges to Christians when I heard that unbelievers were writing books uh, yeah. that contradicted what the Bible says. That caused me to think, well, somebody needs to tell the truth about these issues. So I've written about uh, how to interpret the Bible. I've written a whole book on uh, homosexuality, and that uh, is becoming more and more pertinent, I think, as our culture comes yeah. to endorse it more and more. Uh, and I've written a book about how to uh, study Greek in, in the New Testament, and uh, books on universalism. Uh, a few years ago, my neighbor actually out here, Paul Young, wrote a book called Burning Down, uh, called The Shack. Yeah. And so I wrote a book in response to that called Burning Down the Shack. Yeah. Yeah, in and, fact, I believe that's where we did interview you before. Uh, we oh, interviewed really? you on that book because I knew a little bit about that history, and I had already done a show against that book talking about it. And then when you wrote that, I had you on as well. So, yeah. Oh, okay. I forgot all about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but I, I remember the, that book now that you had written. But, yeah, it's yeah. In the last few years, I've, my attention has turned to eschatology, and so I wrote a book on the Antichrist. It's very comprehensive. Uh, and then the book uh, that we're talking about today, and then uh, another book uh, that came out just earlier this year, which we'll talk about briefly at the end. Uh, so, Miss the Rapture, and I should tell people that the book's title has a question mark. Uh, it's Miss the Rapture, question mark. <laughs> and the subtitle is uh, How to Survive or How to Overcome During the Great Tribulation. Uh, so if a person, the whole intent of the book was that if a person who doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus now uh, discovers all of a sudden that the rapture has taken place, well, hopefully he'll come across a book, our book or a book like ours, <clears throat> that will instruct him and encourage him to turn to the Bible and find out how to become a believer. And then these last uh, chapters in the book about spiritual disciplines will help him to grow and to persevere. Maybe I should just uh, read the topics of these chapters, yeah. because uh, they, they are beneficial even now to any believer. <clears throat> so in the first chapter, Bible study and prayer are dealt with, and then next comes worship, fellowship, and holiness, and then service and self-sufficiency, and finally, spiritual warfare. I think that last chapter in particular will be helpful uh, to lead young believers uh, into a greater awareness of the fact that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, but against spiritual wickedness in high places of various forms. That will be more acute during the Great Tribulation than ever before in human history. That's a pretty strong statement, but I think the Bible bears that out, especially as we read various chapters in the book of Revelation. And then to make the uh, witness complete, John dealt with baptism and the Lord's Supper, the two 
ordinances, as we call them, that are given to the church. They are essential to provide uh, a sense of community among believers, as uh, baptism signifies a person's commitment uh, to make it very clear that he's become a believer, and then secondly, uh, participating in the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. Yeah. Now, you make a great statement on page 105 of the book. You say, the New Testament doesn't replace the Old, it builds on it. And, you know, a lot of people have left off the Old Testament, and you're trying to point out here that the Bible, every bit of it, is relevant to what you're talking about today. Oh, yes. And there is a movement on the part of some people that uh, we don't need to pay attention to the Old Testament, uh, but that's entirely wrong. I remember teaching a class at seminary uh, regularly called The Use of the Old Testament in the New, and much of the Old Testament reflects back on the Old Testament, either as a fulfillment or in other ways quoting it, uh, and that's a whole study in itself. But our Bible is a unified Bible of Old and New Testaments, and each of them are essential. And that runs contrary to some Christians uh, in America today who believe that we can unconnect or dis- disconnect the uh, two Testaments. The other extreme, by the way, Mark, is to go and insist that we need to keep the law of the Old Testament. I heard a preacher just recently say something along that line. Well, we need to read Galatians and what Paul says about that. That That is that uh, uh, we're not under law, but under grace, and so forth. And that's another topic in itself. Well, I do like the part that you brought out here in the book on page 115. You mentioned prayer, and you said it's critical to pray and, elim- and eliminate uh, spiritual baggage. You said one of the devil's common strategies is to torpedo our prayer life. But you also talk about the scripture that says, you know, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. You know, it reveals much. So it's important that we keep a prayer life. It's essential uh, I believe, to living the life and being able to make it uh, through this life. And uh, how's that prayer life going to be so much more vital uh, when you're left behind? Oh, I'll certainly that is going to be true. Uh, John describes here the various elements that go into prayer, uh, including confession and adoration and so forth, uh, but especially emphasizing the power of prayer. That will be especially acute Uh, during the Great Tribulation. Prayer is our number one resource for victory in the Christian life, I believe. And uh, and so John describes uh, how how significant that is, and he quotes various passages, and then he talks about the posture of prayer and the peace of prayer. Uh, So prayer is a very significant Christian discipline that needs to be exercised both now and during the time of the Great Tribulation. Before we go into chapter 10 of the book, there's you're going out of nine, you make a good statement here. You say on 144 that even during the tribulation, the principle of government will still exist, perverse and corrupt as never before, but still the last uh, restage, uh, vintages of God's order for society, and there will be existing under this the will of God, regardless of the conditions. So God's still going to have his hand on what's going on. I mean, yeah, it's going to be pretty chaotic, but God's still going to... He's still going to keep charge over all that, isn't he? Oh, yes. It's very significant to realize that God has a plan, and the Great Tribulation and how it concludes with the Battle of Armageddon and so forth 
all is part of his plan, and it's working to, toward a culmination that is in his planning. So um, we, we should never lose sight of the fact that uh, our both our personal suffering and uh, persecution and so forth, and then that of the larger church as a whole, is all fulfilling a plan that God has uh, destined to be fulfilled. And thankfully, uh, since he is in control, we know that we know how the end is going to happen. We know what the last chapter, as it were, of the book of our uh, existence is. So we can rest assured that everything that happens in our individual lives, and then collectively for our, the church as a whole and the world as a whole, is all coming uh, uh, to pass according to a plan that issues finally in the culmination of a glorious uh, coming of the Lord Jesus in power and glory. You point out something here too page 159 you talk about uh, the increased in demonic activity will be traceable well to me it's getting pretty traceable now but you talk about the increasing indulgence in behaviors and uh, that forces of evil and even the demonic hordes being uh, you know that are in prison being released upon all this this is going to be a pretty nasty time uh, a person really doesn't want to be here for this right I, th- those words about, uh, I think they're in the fifth and sixth trumpet judgment in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 9, uh, struck me as, as they never had before in the sense of the releasing of uh, hordes of demons that will possess uh, basically every human being on the face of the earth. And I take a couple pages to describe what I perceive could be uh, uh, the evidence of that and how it would work out in daily experience. And... Uh, for me, it's scary, and I tried yeah. to, I tried to write in such a vein that all of a sudden people would realize, boy, this is going to be a terrible time. Uh, every human being is possessed by demons. He his control over whatever he does and believes is controlled by demons. Uh, he does things that he never otherwise would have done, and he can't die. He can't commit suicide because the demons are controlled, and they don't want to end. Uh, a human being's life because they want to possess them and, and use that person for his great evil, for his great evil purposes. So uh, I hope that that part will cause us to be soberly reflective of how terrible a time this is, and if for no other reason to escape that scene altogether by putting faith in Christ now. Yeah, you pick up on this towards the end of the book of, you know, chapter 15, the Great Tribulation drives the world to its knees, and, and all these other places here of, of, of the how in-depth the problems are going to be during the Great Tribulation. I, I believe if more people get this, like you were saying, get this in their hands uh, before they, uh, you know, this happens and the gate catching away the church happens, uh, a lot better they're going to be. Oh, I agree. Can I just uh, rehearse the titles of those chapters at the end? Sure, go right ahead. Uh, because this falls out of the earlier book I wrote about the Antichrist, and so I tried to uh, choose the best parts of that earlier book and emphasize what it says. So in Chapter 12, I deal with how the Antichrist rises to destroy Israel, and I deal, deal here with Daniel chapters 2 and 7 and 8 and 9, and actually through the end of the book, 10 through 12. The whole title of this section... Uh, part two of the book is Antichrist's Reign of Terror and God's Revenge. Those are really strong terms, but again, I think that they are part of what the Bible says and reflect that. Uh, then I deal with the Antichrist targets, targets the Lord Jesus 
and his followers. And so I turn to the New Testament and cite passages from what Jesus and Paul and John say about the Antichrist. In my earlier book, I discovered that there are over a hundred statements about the Antichrist found in Old and New Testaments. I was surprised by that discovery myself, and it's such a complex and full uh, study, and, and I came to the conclusion that no other person except Jesus himself is given more space in the Bible than the Antichrist. And then I dealt with how the tribulation is described, first of all, for the Old Testament uh, period, and I titled that chapter, The Seven Years of Tribulation Decimate Israel. I'm seeking to define here uh, what Daniel 9 is all about in the 70 weeks of Daniel, and then I go on to describe, again, what the New Testament says, particularly in Revelation 13 and 17, and that's the chapter that you refer to, The Great Tribulation Drives the World to Its Knees. And then my final chapter, God Takes Revenge on a Rebellious World. The subtitle of that is Carnage and Death. I deal with the three series of judgments here, that the uh, sealed, the trumps, and the bowls of judgment, and I want to dedicate these pages to those topics because there is a common opinion among many Christians that this is not to be taken as literal, that is, that these are just uh, symbolic of spiritual forces or spiritual ideas, and they're not actually going to unfold this way. But the biggest argument to support them as being actual events comes from the Old Testament because they parallel the plagues on Egypt. And there's nobody who's going to say, well, the plagues on Egypt were only figurative and never happened, because then you don't have any explanation for how Israel came into being and through the Exodus was delivered from them. So it's a, a, a very sobering depiction of those judgments from uh, Revelation 6 through uh, 16, I believe the chapters are. Yeah, and, and I like it. You even at the end of that, you have your conclusion where you talk about there as you're going out, you say, you, my, my friend, well, you'll make it to the end of what God intends for you in the days ahead. May you have the confidence, and yeah. as Paul had said. And so, yeah, I'm glad you closed it out there with giving people confidence in what's going on. Yes, I think it's important that people yeah. uh, know that there's hope as Jesus expressed it in Luke 22. Yeah, I agree. Well, folks, when we come back, we're going to be talking about another book, so stay with us. On Purpose, With a Purpose. For a purpose. To get God's truths into their lives. Share God's love with people who need encouragement. You get the truth of God out there, and it resounds and it resonates. 91.7 The Word. It does amazing things in people's lives. Welcome back to Crosspoint. I've been talking today with James B. DeYoung. Uh, interesting book he's put together. Another book now that we're talking about is The Pre-Trib Rapture, Key to the End of the World. And it's a, called a complete handbook to that. And uh, very interesting book here. You've got, uh, James, uh, a book that kind of helps people know the importance of, uh, you know, what we read in about the rapture. Um, you you say that the most important chapter of the book is on the rapture, and that's right in chapter one. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. May I share how this book came into sure. being? Sure. I detect across, what is happening across America, particularly, and I imagine across Europe too, is that uh, churches are turning away from a commitment to the pre-trib view of the rapture and going to a post-trib or even a further away yet and talk about amillennialism and, and believe that. Yeah. 
And as I pursued that thought and uh, began thinking about writing a book along that line, uh, that happened to me personally in my own church here, where it decided to eliminate the word uh, believing in a pre-trib rapture and wanted to treat it as an open topic, and uh, that greatly affected me. So that was one of the incentives to write this book, because I've taught the, the book of Revelation all my uh, life, that is, going way back uh, 50 years ago, uh, when I first came to uh, the Bible school here in Portland, and then eventually to Western Seminary, uh, I was assigned right away to teach uh, courses that include the book of Revelation, so I was forced to uh, deal with it right then and there, and I've been doing dealing with it in the last 50 years. I became more and more convinced, and I've discovered new arguments for the pre-trip view of the rapture, and the subtitle of the book is Key to the End of the World. I chose those words after writing most of the book because I believe that if we get the placing of the timing of the rapture correct, then everything falls into place and uh, makes it a, a full-orbed argument uh, fully defensible uh, for the timing of the rapture. The other subtitle to the book, <laughs> and people may think, well, there's already a subtitle, but actually they're in... There's a f further subtitle down on the lower part of the t uh, of the page, and that is called "Exposing Reformed Eschatology's Embrace of the Beautiful Captive Woman." Those words came to me as I wrote various chapters in the book. I recalled teaching a course in hermeneutics and going back to the early church and read there how Origen, the early church father, living in the second and third centuries went to Greek mythology, uh, the practice that the Greeks used to explain the various uh, uh, myths and stories about their deities, and they did it by allegory, that is, these events didn't really happen to their deities, but they meant something else, and Origen said, you know, this is a beautiful way to deal with some passages in the Bible. In fact, he went to Deuteronomy 21, which talks about a uh, an Israelite soldier going into battle and finding there a beautiful woman, well, he may capture her, a foreigner, and take her home, and after a period of adjustment, uh, he may marry her. And so this is the beautiful captive woman. And it means, Origen says, that doesn't mean that those events actually happen. What is really going on here is that Christians may go to Greek mythology and discover their allegory and take it home and apply it to how we interpret the Bible. From that point on, Origen began interpreting the entire Bible by an allegorical or spiritual interpretation, and that bred all kinds of additional uh, elements to go with it. Uh, and so what, what it means is that uh, from that point on, Origen and the people who believed like he did came to be known as the Alexandrian School of Interpretation. That was headquartered, obviously, in Alexandria, Egypt. There was another school of interpretation that took the Bible literally, and that was in Antioch or Syria. And then a third school was centered in Rome, Italy, the Western school. And eventually, within 100 or 200 years, the Alexandrian school won over the other two schools, and Origen and his school influenced Augustine, who adopts allegory to interpret the book of Revelation and other prophecies, and that leads to the Reformation and the Reformers, who argued against 
allegorical interpretation in many areas, especially in the areas of soteriology and theology, uh, but they never change the allegory for interpreting prophecy and the book of Revelation. So to this day, the uh, various churches and institutions, seminaries and so forth, that are uh, directly descended from the Reformation do not believe that the book of Revelation should be interpreted literally and other prophecies. So we are saddled with this uh, spiritualized or figurative interpretation of all kinds of prophecy, and I'll get into greater details of how that works out in a minute, but that is the experience and that's the situation as it is in America today. Yeah, I think in chapters like two through five, you kind of give which needs to be the historical uh, historical support uh, for a pre-trib rapture. There's a lot of argument about this pre-trib rapture, but you give evidence of it. Yes. Well, I discovered that, uh, among other things, people use terms and terminology about the end that uh, it are inappropriate. Their use of that terminology is uh, confusing. So there are only three phrases that refer to the uh, future. One is the end, the other is uh, the last days, and finally the day of the Lord. And what people, well, people who are committed to a non-millennial approach and a figurative approach to the Old Testament confuse those three terms, and they say, therefore, that we're living in the time of the end, uh, and that allows them to say we're living now in the time of a spiritualized great tribulation, and therefore, uh, the suffering that people are enduring now means that they're undergoing great, the Great Tribulation. Well, that doesn't really coincide with the actual wording of the Great Tribulation in the Old and, and in the New Testaments. It's going to be far, far worse than what Americans or people even under persecution today are suffering. So you spiritualize the Great Tribulation, then you spiritualize the Battle of Armageddon at the end, and you spiritualize the rapture so that really is almost lost among uh, the prophetic events of the future. And the only thing that we are looking forward to then, according to this scheme of understanding, is the new heavens and new earth. There's no millennial kingdom. There's no actual reign of Jesus coming on earth. And another key aspect of this is that the Church is made the receiver of God's promises given to Israel, or to put it differently, the Church has replaced Israel as far as the future is concerned. So, Mark, in light of today's events of what's happening in Israel, uh, this is a very significant matter, because people who are amillennial, who, who give themselves to an allegorical interpretation of prophecy, have no basis for praying or hoping or wishing that Israel will survive this conflict because Israel doesn't have a future as a nation and as an ethnic people. It all rests in God's hands, doesn't it? And a lot of people, well, again, they use man-made things to look at everything. And uh, what you wrote in this book, I think is, again, like it was in the other book, it's it's very timely, uh, because you kind of explain it in a completeness there, even towards the end, in the conclusion. You help people try and understand Bible prophecy, because it is a hard area to understand. Uh, why do most places not want to even talk about Bible prophecy in the churches? Because of its understanding? Oh, yeah. yeah, it's a very much uh, an off-limit uh, kind of topic. Uh, and basically, uh, teachers will say, well, it's too hard to understand, or there are so many different views of it that therefore it's only confusing and so forth. 
So I give it at the beginning of one of my chapters about a half a dozen reasons why people don't want to study uh, prophecy. Um, and, and, and I've had several experiences in the last uh, several months that reinforce what I just said. It's very, very unfortunate because biblical prophecy fills the Bible, that is, prophecy of the first coming of Christ and then of the second coming of Christ. And the prophecies of the first coming of Christ were literally fulfilled. And yet amillennialism comes along and says, well, no, not those of the second coming of Christ. Uh, They are to be interpreted allegorically or spiritually. And it's all based in this idea that the church has been replaced by Israel as far as the promises are concerned. I devote a whole chapter to this in the middle of the book and trace how uh, how this view took place in some early non-biblical writings written by Christian, nevertheless. And they say that uh, because of Israel's disobedience, failure to believe uh, in Christ and receive him as Messiah, uh, God has turned away from uh, Israel and uh, taken all the promises and they're fulfilled spiritually in the church. For example, Augustine said there's no millennial kingdom coming, it's already here. The church is the kingdom. Satan is bound now, uh, and this will go on till the new heavens and new earth. So he took those promises dealing with the Battle of Armageddon and, and uh, uh, the millennial kingdom. Revelation uh, 19 and then chapters uh, 20, and said uh, these these prophecies are never going to be fulfilled literally. Jesus is not going to come to reign on earth. Uh, Israel is never going to be exalted and restored to a nation of God's favor again. And so the practical application of that is, again, in the war that's going on now in Israel, Uh, There's no biblical basis to pray that God would preserve the Jewish people. It's a terrible, terrible consequence. And if you listen carefully to our millennial preachers today, they hardly bring up the war in Israel because they don't know how to deal with it. Yeah. Well, and you also go into a lot of depth in the book uh, of our history. And you go back a lot to the Reformers and and in that area as well. So you bring out a lot of these things, and and I think that is good as as well. So, uh, James, you have this book here. We have the other book. Tell people how they can find out more about these books. Uh, Do you have a website? Uh, What's the best way to contact you? They can contact me. On the back of the book, I give uh, an address for a podcast that John and I have done, and it's on the back of the first book, uh, Miss the Rapture. Uh, people can contact me through uh, going online to uh, get the book. I'll, I'll just give you my email address here, uh, okay. jdey7 at aol.com. It uses my initials, jdey7, and I'd be glad to uh, uh, help people if they would contact me that way. But the book is available through Amazon and through Christian uh, organizations. Well, we do appreciate you talking about these books, very timely books, by the way. And uh, thanks for being on the show today with us here on Crosspoint. Well, thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Good interview today, folks. Hey, there's so much to talk about going on in the world around us. And folks, you need to know and study books like this where people's really put some work in and comparing them with what God's Word says to help us understand the times we live in. The Bible, the other book I have in my hand, it also helps us. It's the best book uh, to have in your hand, too, is right now because it's the Word of God. It's never outdated. 
It's his inspired words, the book, it accurately directs, uh, talks about what's going on in the world around us. Why? Because it contains the most important words you're ever going to read and certainly ever need to be following. Be sure and join us again next time as we again discuss issues that are affecting the church. Have a great week and allow God to use you for his purposes so that greater things can be done. Make your life count in God's plans for eternity. I'm Mark Taylor. Crosspoint is a program produced in Studio 101 at KNAO Radio. Not all of the views on Crosspoint reflect those of the management or staff of KNEO. You may contact the Crosspoint program at 10827 Highway 86 East, the Osho, Missouri, 64850, or by email crosspoint at kneo.org. You can hear Crosspoint four times a week, Saturday morning at 1, Saturday afternoon at 2, Saturday evening at 9, and Sunday evening at 7. You can also listen anytime online at kneo.org. Harper's Kennel of Stella, Missouri is proud to be sponsoring this portion of broadcasting on KNEO. Owned by Judy and Danny Harper, Harper's Kennel of Stella, Missouri specializes in French Bulldogs. For more information, the phone number is 417-628-3083.